Cut releases a YouTube video called Abortion is for Everyone, where they can't decide whether to tell men to shut up on abortion or to shout for abortion, plus an accidentally pro-life message. Then, not to be one-upped in being as radically pro-abortion as possible, Vice Media releases their own piece of pro-choice virtue signaling called What It's Like to Have a Second Trimester Abortion without ever talking about what it's like to have a second trimester abortion. I will translate all this euphemistic propaganda into the English language. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Otherborn. So you may not have heard of the media company Cut, but you may have remembered a video released by a YouTube channel called Hi-Ho Kids a few months back called Kids Meet Someone Who's Had an Abortion. Now, Cut Media is the parent company. They are the production company of the Hi-Ho Kids YouTube channel. And if you remember that video, they brought in Amelia Bonow, who was the founder of the movement and author of the book, Shout Your Abortion. So obviously a very concerning individual to have on a YouTube channel with children, feeding them pro-choice propaganda. So, so that's who Cut is. They are a far, far left media company that creates videos to indoctrinate children and basically amuse those who are already members of the left. And so they released this video recently called Abortion is for Everyone. And it's a series of interviews, all with men, asking them what they think about abortion, what they think about men talking about abortion, asking them, do you feel comfortable talking about abortion? And if not, why not? Now, I just want to point out how hilarious this is, right? Because we've been told by the left and by the pro-choice movement for quite some time, well before I was born, that if you don't have a uterus, if you're a man, you have to shut up on abortion. You have no right to voice your opinion if you're a dude. And so it's pretty hilarious that this video called Abortion is for everyone, not just women, and then interviews solely men on what they think about abortion. This should tell you that when pro-choice individuals say that abortion is a woman's issue and if you're a guy, you have to shut up, what they really mean is that pro-life men have to shut up. That's what, that's what they mean. This is about ideological conformity and not about gender. And we know that as well because abortion advocates don't like it when women are pro-life. So if you're a woman but you disagree with the abortion agenda, you should shut up. All men should shut up except actually if you're a pro-choice man, we want you to speak up and shout your abortion. So this is really about concentrating the message to only be a pro-choice message, not necessarily about gender. So shut up or shout, what is it? You can't have it both ways. So we're gonna play you the first clip here and we're gonna play a few because again, this, this is a show where we, we wanna unpack culture, right? We wanna unpack ideas and examine the consequences that ideas have. And when media like this gets created with hundreds of thousands of hits, we should be concerned and we should examine it in the culture we live in. So here's the first clip with men giving their opinions on 
why men talk about abortion or why they don't, why they're comfortable with it or why they're not. So we're gonna go ahead and play the first clip. Does it make you feel uncomfortable at all to talk about abortion? Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. It almost feels like men shouldn't talk about it, like it's not their domain. Why do you think men have a harder time talking about this issue? Because we don't know, usually. <laughs> we just don't know a damn thing about abortion. Honestly, I think most men don't care. The men who don't feel uncomfortable talking about this issue are trying to take away abortion access from women. I think that it makes it difficult for men to speak up. As somebody who feels like they want to be an advocate for women and women's rights, I want to be able to talk about it openly, but at the same time, I don't want to get in the way. Like, I don't want to pretend like I'm an expert on abortion and take up the space of someone who's actually having to make that decision for themselves. Do you think some men are afraid of saying, like, the wrong thing when talking about this topic? I'm terrified of saying the wrong thing. Are you kidding me? I feel that all the time. Don't know if I'm saying the right thing. Like, am I saying the right thing? Am I saying too much? Am I not saying enough? Like, how should I be phrasing this? Like, my hope at least is that it gets easier because this is super awkward. Wow, I mean, aren't those just the kind of guys you want your daughters to bring home? Isn't that just the kind of guys you want as a son-in-law? I mean, my goodness. Think about how far we have come from our ideas of masculinity, our ideas of leadership, our culture, particularly our men, have, have really abandoned any and all ideas that would provide a foundation for being a good man. Once, once you abandon the idea of a god, particularly the Christian God, particularly a God who's in, actually involved. He's not just a deistic God who set the world spinning and then peaced out. Particularly if you abandon the idea of a Christian God who actually cares about the people he's created and is involved in the world, then you've also abandoned any idea of an objective moral law. Because objective moral laws that are true for all people at all times and in all places only make sense if there's, if there's a single God, if there's an objective God who, who's created these laws, who's, as the scriptures would say, has written eternity on the hearts of man, meaning that, that human beings have some sense of a higher moral order, namely being a God. Once you, once you abandon those ideas, then you abandon the virtues that rest on those ideas, right? Because why have virtue? Why be good at all if there's no God? If there's no God and there's no objective standard that we're all beholden to and, and that we'd all be better off getting in line with, then we can just design our own truth. So we shouldn't be surprised, sadly, when we see men like this who have, who have distanced themselves so far from objective morality as to say, I don't even really want to speak up about the killing of unborn children. Because... As the one gentleman said, I don't want to take up the space of someone who's had an experience with abortion. I mean, we have lost all ability to have disagreements and express ideas that other people might not like. But particularly on the issue of abortion that is really the greatest human rights violation ever, the killing of the most defenseless members in our society. There, there is no more defenseless of a human than a baby. And yet the way that these men talk about abortion is so relativistic because they've abandoned the idea of a God. So they've abandoned the idea of the virtues that can only rest 
on the concept of a god that can only flourish in the concept of a higher moral objective order. Compare the concept of manhood and leadership that the ancients held, such as Aristotle, to these men. To these men who, who just say, I mean, the only guys that talk about abortion are those wanting to take women's rights away, so I don't even talk about it. Aristotle wrote a, a pretty seminal piece, however many centuries ago, called Nicomache Nicomachean Ethics. And in his book, he discusses this idea called eudaimonia. Eudaimonia. It's a Greek word, and it stands for good spirit. Good spirit. And Aristotle explains that a good spirit is driven by virtue and its practices. So if you want to be a good man, if you want to be a good person, you're going to accomplish that through virtue and the practicing thereof. Virtues such as courage, loyalty, industry, resiliency, resolution, personal responsibility, self-reliance, integrity, and sacrifice. These were the pillars of manhood that Aristotle was explaining were the best ways to live if you wanted to flourish and be fruitful and live a good life, have a good spirit. Compare that to the vices of abortion. Abortion is the absolute antithesis of virtue, the absolute opposite of virtue. Abortion turns virtue on its head and we're left with all of the vices that come along with abortion. Abortion really, abortion really encapsulates all the worst vices of humans. Abortion is cowardice. Abortion is disloyalty to your family, namely the child that you helped create. Abortion is the fragility of men. Abortion is inequity, injustice, the sacrifice of children over you sacrificing yourself to provide for your family. Abortion is selfishness. Abortion is abusive because it's the worst form of child abuse. And so when a society leaves the idea of a god, leaves the idea of virtue as an honorable thing to pursue, then we're left with every type of vice that we hate. Vices become virtues in the minds of Americans because all truth is personal now. All truth is subjective. We design our own truth. So if my girlfriend wants to get an abortion, I don't really care because that's her truth. In fact, that absolves me of a responsibility that I would otherwise owe to this woman and to the child that I helped create. So abortion is the antithesis of all of the virtues that Aristotle talked about in his Nicomachean Ethics about what it means to be a man, have a good spirit, and live a good life. So these ideas have consequences. And sadly, the men in these videos are not the exception. They are much more becoming the rule in our society today. So this clip continues from uh, Abortion is for Everyone as these men continue to express the benefits of abortion for their own life and what they think about abortion. So here we go. We're going to go ahead and play clip number two. Has your life been impacted by abortion access? No. I've never gotten somebody pregnant that ended up having an abortion. Do you know that for sure? I'm pretty sure anybody that I've ever been with wanted to have a kid with me. So I don't think that would have been a problem. Oh, so unborn children are kids. <laughs> See, 
accidental pro-life messages come out of the mouths of pro-choice activists all the time. Why? Because truth has a very annoying habit of reasserting itself in our lives, uninvited. <laughs> truth can't help but reassert itself in our lives, whether we want it to or not, because there actually are objective truths that are true for all people at all times and in all places. What an interesting exchange that was. This is coming from one of the most far-left pro-abortion-leaning media companies in the world with millions of YouTube subscribers, and they asked this man, has your life been impacted by abortion access? And he goes, well, no, and no one I know has had an abortion because anyone who wanted to be with me wanted to have kids with me. So are you saying that the products of pregnancy in the womb are kids? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they accidentally published this piece because we really all know that unborn children are kids. So they continue asking this question, has your life been impacted by abortion access to another series of men? And there's one of these men who gives a sobering, sad, and disgusting answer, but we need to examine it. So we're going to go ahead and look at this next clip. Has your life been impacted by abortion access? Yeah, I got someone pregnant when I was young. She told me she was going to get an abortion and did not want me to help out in any way, which was kind of hard for me to accept. Even still a little bit hard for me to accept because I just like, I want to do the right thing and be supportive. But that's what she wanted, so. That's what we did. Do you think that experience affected the way that you talk to women about these things in the future? Oh, for sure. Like in what way? I got a vasectomy. Don't have to worry about jack shit anymore. That clip epitomizes the title of this video series. Abortion is for everyone. This is the message that Cut is pushing, right? They're now trying to change the narrative. The narrative used to be abortion is women's rights. Abortion is a woman's issue. And so we ought to only be hearing from women. But now they're, they're changing the narrative to say, no, abortion is for everyone. And the message is ultimately a message of selfishness, right? The message ultimately is that you can utilize abortion to remove human beings from your life, namely your unborn children, that you don't want so that they don't hinder you from pursuing your career or whatever other endeavors that you have that children would significantly prevent you from pursuing. So this guy says, yeah, we had an abortion. I kind of felt uncomfortable about it. I wanted to do the right thing, but you know what? It, that's what she wanted, so that's what we did. This is the... This is men without chests. This is the castration of the masculine spirit that was supposed to be protectors and providers. He, and he, you see that for just a second. He goes, I wanted to do the right thing. Oh, are you saying abortion is a debate of moral significance where there are right and wrong choices? Yes, that is what pro-life people have been saying for decades. But then he goes on to say, but that's what she wanted to do, so we went and did it. And then I got a vasectomy, and I don't have to worry about Jack bleep, because I was able to remove that child from my life. Abortion is for everyone. So abortion is for men too. That's the message 
that's being communicated so that men can continue treating women and the children they create as objects, remain morally pubescent boys, and have sex without responsibility. That, that's ultimately the virtue, right? This is, this is supposed to be a virtue that's, this is, this is really a vice disguised as a virtue, right? That abortion is for men too, so that we can absolve ourselves of the responsibility of caring for, raising, and providing for the children that we created. This is the pro-abortion message now. Abortion is for everyone. So the producers of this clip go on to ask these men, would you sleep with someone who was against abortion? The point of asking this question is beyond me, but we're going to examine it anyways. Would you sleep with someone who was against abortion? Yeah, that wouldn't be a deterrent. But would you ever sleep with someone who was against abortion? Hmm, probably no. No. Hell no. Probably not. Wow. Why, why would you even ask that question? <laughs> would you sleep with someone who was against abortion? Now, I, I think we can see that, that the heart behind this question is an ad hominem attack against pro-lifers. Every single dude, except the first guy, who, who seems to maybe be the guy with the, the most functioning moral conscience of all these guys, every single dude except him says, nope, hell no, I wouldn't sleep with someone who was pro-life. Why ask that except to demonize pro-lifers as these horrific human beings that are so deplorable that you shouldn't even sleep with them. <laughs> but I think, I think the deeper and, and even more depraved assumption in that question is this. The assumption is that if I as a pro-choice dude sleep with a pro-life woman and get her pregnant, she won't want to have an abortion. I don't want to run the risk of sleeping with a pro-life woman because she's opposed to killing unborn children. And I probably wouldn't be able to persuade her to get an abortion because you know those anti-choice people stick to their guns. So what, what would be the consequence for these morally pubescent boys who love abortion? The consequence for them would be, I have to grow up now, adopt a certain level of personal responsibility to provide for this child and this woman that I slept with because she was pro-life. I mean, I think that's really the deeper and more depraved assumption here. And the reason why the producers of this video are asking all these pro-choice guys that question. You don't wanna sleep with pro-life women because they love life, they love babies, and, and they won't agree with you in wanting to kill them to absolve yourself of responsibility as a provider. What a, what a horrible question to ask and what, what a dark motive really. <laughs> to demonize pro-lifers in that way, who we know are ones who really just want to celebrate and protect life, particularly for children who are the most vulnerable. So the final question here in this clip is, is really telling because it, it speaks to the title of the video series itself, which is abortion is for everyone. And they want men to realize that abortion is for them. So here's the last clip. The title of this video series is abortion is for everyone. Does that resonate with you? I could agree with that. Any of us could have been aborted. So it would have been for you then. Oh no. <laughs> Did you hear what he said? 
any of us could have been aborted. So it would have been for you then. Do you resonate with the statement, abortion is for everyone? Well, yeah, abortion would have been for you if you were in the womb, rip limb from limb. <laughs> Two accidentally super pro-life messages in a video produced by probably some of the most pro-abortion people in our country. Doesn't truth just get annoying how it keeps kicking the darn door into our lives? They produce this. They let this be in their pro-abortion propaganda video. Now, here's the pro-life message, right? If we really unpack what he's saying here, here's why, here's why these producers would have never put this clip into this video if they knew what that statement admitted. This gentleman says that any of us could have been aborted. Well, what's the assumption there? The assumption is that the you now is the same you in the womb, isn't it? Because any of us, meaning any one of you could have been aborted. Not, not the fetus that you used to be before you magically transitioned species into a human. No, the you that was in the womb could have been aborted. And then he says, abortion would have been for you then. Yes, because the you in the womb is the same you now. And there's been a continuum of human development of the same entity, the same person from conception until now. That's the accidental pro-life message that gets communicated here. That we all really know that the picture that our mothers have of us on the fridge at the first ultrasound appointment at eight weeks is the same kid that's off at college, the same kid walking down the aisle getting married, the same kid providing grandchildren to pro-abortion parents who celebrate those grandchildren because they wanna be grandparents but would otherwise support killing them. We all really know, see, that it's the same person from the moment of conception. So in one minute, we're going to examine a video released by Vice Media called What It's Like to Have a Second Trimester Abortion, except you learn nothing about what it's like to have a second trimester abortion, except that abortion is a really good thing for mothers and babies, and we need to kill more babies. But first, if you like this show and you want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars, then head on over to patreon.com slash unaborted and become a patron of the show. I know you get asked by everyone for your money, but after 47 years of legalized abortion and over 60 million dead babies, life is winning again in America. However, as it always is, the defenders of abortion are doing everything they can to shut down dialogue and often even try to deplatform shows like this that discuss triggering ideas. But with your help, we can continue to produce this show, increase our protection value, and provide a one-stop shop for pro-life individuals like you to get information, training, encouragement, and a bit of humor so you can go back out and be a voice for the unborn children in our midst. We'll be right back. So not to be one-upped in being as pro-abortion as possible, Vice Media releases their own piece of pro-choice virtue signaling in a video called What It's Like to Have a Second Trimester Abortion on July 10th. 
Now, this video was released really in large response to the pro-life bill in Georgia banning abortions after six weeks, at which point the unborn child has a detectable heartbeat. So they feature the stories of women and families in Georgia who obtained second trimester abortions, who arranged the death of their unborn children because of certain complications that actually may or may not have ended the life of their unborn child. So this video, I mean, really should be called Why Killing Second Trimester Babies is Okay or How to Use Doublespeak to Justify Feticide. So I just want to briefly say if you're a very passionate pro-lifer and you care deeply about this cause and you have a really soft heart, the clips we're going to show are pretty sobering um, and pretty, pretty saddening because of how deeply entrenched these families are in the pro-abortion world view. Now, these families mentioned some of the fetal diagnoses that their children got in the womb, and it was for this reason that they scheduled their abortion. Now, not all the parents mentioned what those diagnoses were, but some of them did, and some of them were trisomy 18, which is obviously a horrific, very saddening condition, hydrocephalus, where fluid fills certain cavities in the brain, some chromosomal problems, a failing heart in one instance, and then just sort of the general like, oh, your baby's not likely to live long after birth. Now, in the case of trisomy 18, about 12% of children will make it to their first birthday. So it's obviously a very, very heartbreaking condition. In the case of hydrocephalus, actually, that's really not a life-threatening, it's not really leading to death. Usually you can deal with it sometimes in utero or right at birth by, by being able to basically move all of that fluid from the cavities in the brain and the baby's body just absorbs it. And there are plenty of adults living with this condition who can still live fruitful lives. And then in the other circumstances, we don't really know why what the condition was that led these parents to schedule their abortion. But certainly the ones that they bring up are not a death sentence. Some of them may be several years later, but some of them won't be. It's just gonna make life really, really difficult. So sadly, this is actually a pure propaganda piece on why we need abortion through the second trimester and really just to the day of birth because that is the current pro-choice position on abortion, okay? So we're gonna go ahead and play this first clip where interestingly enough, these parents actually explain that they wanted to name the children for whom they were responsible for killing. So this is a pretty ghoulish clip, but we need to examine it. Her diagnosis was so severe, we knew that she wasn't going to survive no matter which route we went. And so I remember at night I was laying in bed and I just said, she deserves to have a name. We named our daughter Angelica. Her name was Lola. His name is Carson. We named our daughter Charlotte. Our first one that we terminated was named Stephen. The last one that we terminated was named Rachel. We were thrilled to know we were having a girl and decided on Naomi as the name. I still, you know, think of her as my daughter. We, we did not pick a name, and I still think about it every day. So there's a lot to unpack here. There's this, there's this really disturbing and dark tension in that clip, isn't there? These parents are recognizing 
that they chose to kill their child. They're mourning the death of their children as children, as people with value, not as blobs of tissue. And then naming their children for whom they're responsible for killing, right? So, I mean, it's not like these were stillbirths or the baby died in the womb and so they had to remove it. These children had very painful and difficult deformities or diagnoses that would have made their life more difficult, but their parents are still responsible for their death. I mean, there's a ghoulish aspect, a very macabre aspect to naming the children that you kill. And the first couple, the wife says that she deserved to have a name. And we just scratch our heads sometimes, right, as pro-lifers. And we want to say, if your baby deserved to have a name, then your baby deserved to live. A right to life is significantly more important than a right to have a name. The reason we name anything is to ascribe some level of value. And that could be as silly as a guy naming his truck that he likes. Or as slightly more morally important as families naming their dog. Because their dog has some type of value and is loved by the family. And then at the very highest levels, of course, we name human beings to acknowledge their existence, and their intrinsic worth and dignity. Why? Because a right to life is significantly more important than a right to be named. We name people because they're valuable, because they have a right to life. So there's just this really dark and ghoulish irony to this clip where the parents are acknowledging the value of their children Naming them as such while admitting that they are the ones responsible for their child's death. Now, okay, you know, you might say, well, Seth, I mean, the death of the baby was inevitable. Come on. These parents weren't using abortion as birth control. My goodness. Tone down your language, right? The, the death of the baby was inevitable and the parents were simply preventing future significant suffering. So we're going to address that in a second because that topic and objection is going to come up again through some of these clips. But I think we should just really acknowledge and maybe even learn to have some compassion for individuals who celebrate abortion and yet, and yet acknowledge the value of the unborn child. I mean, the, the, these are people we need to be praying for if, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in that, because what a horrible tension to live in. What a horrible tension to have to live in as a family to know that you're responsible for the death of your child but then believe that you were merciful in killing them to prevent future suffering so this is the consequences of these types of ideas when we begin to treat human beings valuable only in virtue of their convenience and we talked about this last week in the show only in terms of your convenience and your instrumental good to me And so we're going to see more of those ideas and their consequences in these following clips. So the next clip looks at some of the women, one in particular, who talks about why why women in these circumstances with children with fetal diagnoses that will cause significant suffering in their life, why these women actually, they have to do this, why they have to kill their children in the womb. So let's go ahead and look at this second clip. 
lot of what's talked about is, you know, women who have unwanted pregnancies, but there are so many women who have wanted pregnancies, desperately wanted pregnancies that have to make really hard decisions. And this bill doesn't seem to recognize that at all. And neither do the conversation. So just to put this clip in context, this mother is talking about the Georgia bill, right? That these laws don't seem to recognize the circumstances that women are in. And she said that many women have wanted pregnancies, desperately wanted pregnancies. And then she says, but half have to make difficult decisions. And th so this is what I meant when I said this clip should have been called how to use doublespeak to justify feticide. That this entire video clip has nothing to do with what a second trimester abortion is actually like physically for the mother and obviously for the child who's ripped limb from limb. It just has to do with why we need to kill more babies in the second trimester because if they have diagnoses that will make their life more uncomfortable, worse off, entail more suffering, then we need to kill them to spare them those difficult life circumstances. And so notice the type of language here. Many women, ha women have desperately wanted pregnancies. I don't know a single person who desperately wants a pregnancy. I know a lot of people who desperately want a baby. I know a lot of people who desperately want a son or a daughter. Nobody desperately wants a pregnancy. For a lot of women, pregnancy is a really uncomfortable nine months. For a lot of women, pregnancy, pertaining, depending on how intense that pregnancy is, actually leads women to not get pregnant again because pregnancy was so uncomfortable. Who wants a pregnancy? People want what is inside your womb. People want the products of a pregnancy, a child, a baby. So even the way that women who have aborted their own children talk about abortion is done in such a way to make abortion more thinkable, to make it easier to rationalize. Desperately want a pregnancy. And then she says that we have to make these difficult decisions. So I may have desperately wanted my pregnancy, but I have to make difficult decisions. This, this is an amazing statement. Why do you have to make a difficult decision to kill your child simply because your child has some type of fetal abnormality? Why do you have to do that? You don't have to do that. You can give life to your child and spend whatever hours, weeks, months, or years that you get with that child. That's not to discount the pain and horror that comes along with having a baby that you know you're not going to be able to spend very long with. It's to say that that child is equally valuable. You do not have to do that. Now again, look at all of the moral language that is used here. Look at how much moral weight there is to unpack in these, what, 11 words? A pregnancy, no, a baby have to, no, you don't have to, and that that decision is difficult. Once again, why are these decisions difficult? Because abortion is a debate of moral significance. We have to clarify this over and over and over again because people who celebrate abortion have pushed the message for decades now 
that it's a commonplace medical procedure that one in four women will have had and is often necessary and it's something we need to protect if we care about women's rights. That is, you cannot balance that message with this is a really difficult decision. And yet even people who celebrate abortion, we hear them jump back and forth between this type of language all the time, which is really interesting. Even people like Cecile Richards or Leanna Wen, the new president of Planned Parenthood, we've even heard these types of women say difficult decisions. Leaders of pro-choice organizations say difficult decisions that women have to make for their families. Why are they difficult? Because we know deep down somewhere in our heart that even those who are pro-choice know that the unborn child has moral significance. And that's why these women who are justifying their second trimester abortion of their child with a fetal abnormality can't help but acknowledge the reality that abortion is a conversation of deeply moral significant nature. So why do these women believe that they have to abort children with complications? Well, they're going to tell us and we're going to see a little bit of the worldview and justifications behind these women and these, some, in some cases, these couples, these families' decision to do that. So we're going to look at this same woman again as she unpacks some of the reasons to why she justifies her second trimester abortion of her daughter with a fetal abnormality. If I can make a choice where it's the best outcome for my child to not have to suffer that's what i'm going to choose and i will choose it every day yeah. whether it's legal or not that is such an amazing statement and i don't mean amazing by good that that is a that is an astounding statement she says that if i can make a choice where it's the best outcome for my child to not have to suffer, then I will choose it every day, whether it's legal or not. This mother just said, essentially, that if she got pregnant again, and she found out that her child had a fetal abnormality again, and she still lives in Georgia where abortion is illegal after there's a detectable heartbeat at six weeks, she is going to kill that baby anyways because it is merciful for her to kill that child. Because as she says, quote, the best outcome for my child to not have to suffer. This is an amazing statement. And this goes to show the moral decay of our society in how we view those who are less than in the eyes of society. And what I mean by that is just that life is harder. We understand that these babies are still intrinsically valuable regardless of the, of the difficulties they'll be facing. And yet this is how parents of these children view them. So much for the maternal and paternal instinct to care for your child. If that child has an abnormality that will make their life more difficult, this mother says, the best outcome for that child, for my daughter, is to kill them. And this brings up a very interesting conversation and question, philosophically and morally. And that question is, is, is it worse to experience suffering or to cause suffering, to inflict suffering, right? So is, is it worse 
that a child experiences suffering? Or is it worse for you to cause suffering to someone else, namely that child? This is really the moral questions that are being juggled in these exchanges and in these clips, in this video, because the view of these parents is that it is worse to, ex to experience suffering. And so because it's worse to experience suffering, it is justifiable in these parents' minds to eliminate the sufferer so that they don't have to endure more suffering. That is, that is an amazing statement. That is an amazing immoral justification for the behavior that she's endorsing here. Now, in what other circumstance is eliminating the sufferer an acceptable solution in order to eliminate the suffering? <laughs> to, use, to use maybe somewhat of a crass or simplistic analogy, if my wife has a migraine, I can eliminate her suffering, I can eliminate the headache by beheading her, I can drag her to a guillotine and slice off her head, migraine's gone, suffering's gone, but that's not really a solution, right? That's not an acceptable solution by any moral standards and wouldn't be an acceptable solution by anyone, regardless of political partisanship or party affiliation. We would all condemn that. That would be a very horrific, disgusting, and immoral solution to suffering. Furthermore, there, there is a idolatrous nature to what's being discussed. Again, if, 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 you're, if you're a Christian and you believe in God's moral law and in the existence of a God, there's a very disturbing idolatrous nature of this conversation. To determine as a human being that you have the requisite knowledge and power to determine if someone else's suffering is of a sufficient evil that eliminating them is the best solution to end their suffering is idolatry by any definition. To place yourself in that type of deistic throne, and that to make yourself a deity with that type of power, to just point your finger and determine that your suffering is so bad that I'm going to kill you to eliminate your suffering it is an amazing, amazing action to justify. But this is the predominant assumption in the pro-choice community regarding children with fetal deformities or terminal illnesses. That is the predominant assumption, that it is okay to kill these babies. And killing them is merciful because we're sparing them future suffering. And that is very clear in this video clip. So we're going to look at another family here that views their abortion in very similar terms. And we're going to see some of the same type of doublespeak be used to soften the reality of what was actually done. When the news was broken to us that our baby was incompatible with life, and then in the same breath, 
these politics entered in where we felt forced to make a decision. Quickly. And I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my head around it, talking about legal termination. Well, what the hell does that mean? This is a medical decision for what's best for our baby. And so that felt like it had no place. This is a medical decision for what's best for our baby. I mean, this takes this type of doublespeak to a whole nother level, right? The, the woman earlier was saying that it's the best outcome for my child to not have to suffer. I mean, that is problematic enough. But at least she's saying it's the best outcome and she's trying to prevent future suffering. Again, there's, there's moral problems there. But this father says that it's actually the best for our baby. It's, it's not the best for an outcome. It's not the best for the circumstances. It's the best for you, baby. Dismembering you is good for you. Why don't you thank me? I mean, th this, is, this is deeply disturbing. But again, this is the predominant assumption in large swaths of the culture that this is an acceptable solution to children with deformities or with terminal illnesses. You see, abortion becomes compassionate. The, the vice becomes the virtue, and the virtue becomes the means by which you alleviate suffering. This is an incredible, incredible justification for what can properly be defined as euthanasia, the weeding out of human beings who because of their development, because of their deformity, because of their illnesses, are deemed to be less than and are given the death penalty, essentially. So euthanasia, abortion, which is feticide, becomes virtue and becomes compassionate for the baby. This father literally says that this was a medical decision that was best for our baby. And we're going to see the same distorted view of compassion at the end of life. If, if human beings do not have intrinsic dignity and value and worth, then there's no justification, there's no grounding to explain the defense of human beings that need our help. Because if not all human beings are equal in dignity and worth, then that means that there are some human beings that we can intentionally weed out if they don't meet the cultural expectation of value. Because if, if it's not intrinsic and objective, if that value is not intrinsic and objective, then it becomes up to the culture to determine who has value and who doesn't. And so the less than, those who are marginalized and need help become the ones who get weeded out. Now, imagine a scenario in which a family treated their toddler like this. Imagine a scenario where a family got the news that their three-year-old toddler contracted leukemia. And it is a terminal prognosis. So this toddler will likely not see six years old. And so... Vice Media does an interview with a handful of families with three-year-olds who have leukemia. And then the parents express their compassion and their love and their care for their toddlers. How did they express that compassion and care? 
Well, they killed their children. Their children are no longer here. Thank God for such compassionate parents. You see, they knew that these children weren't going to make it past six years old. And so rather than allow three years of suffering, they took their children to another country where euthanasia is legal. And they had those children's lives ended. But wow, aren't they compassionate? In what world, in what political party in the United States would that be acceptable? These families would be put on the national stage and condemned as murderers by, by nearly everyone. Of course, unfortunately, the left has become so radical that euthanasia has become an acceptable solution. But right now, it's usually only acceptable for the elderly. Again, there's, that makes no sense as to why it's acceptable there and not in the case of a three-year-old. It probably will become acceptable in the case of a three-year-old in a few years. But for now, most people in our country, regardless of radical left, radical right, conservative, moderate, Republican, would all condemn the scenario that I just laid out. Why? Why is that wrong? Because those toddlers and children have intrinsic dignity, value, and worth. And that dignity is objective. It's not based on how their parents view them. It's not based on how society views their value. It's an intrinsic dignity, worth, and value. That's why our founders said that we hold these truths to be self-evident, right? We all know this deep down because we would want our lives to be protected. It's self-evident. We know this deep down that all human beings have this type of moral worth and dignity. And so if it would be wrong for parents to arrange the murder of their toddlers in order to spare them three years of suffering due to leukemia, why, why is it acceptable to these parents and in the minds of so many in our culture to arrange the murder of their unborn children because of terminal illnesses that will likely take their lives within a few years? The answer should be, it's not. It's not acceptable. And this points to the reality of the dehumanization of the unborn children in our midst. Because we accept the killing of unborn children for certain reasons. But we would reject the killing of toddlers if we applied the same reasons that we accept killing unborn children. So that goes to show the, the tension that cannot be reconciled in the hearts and minds of these parents. The tension is that there's no meaningful difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that makes it okay to kill you, the embryo, right? Because any differences between unborn humans and you and me are the same differences we find amongst ourselves, all born people. So, so there's no adequate justification to kill unborn children because all human beings differ according to the same ways that those in the pro-choice movement used to justify abortion. You can't say, well, the unborn child is smaller, it's dependent on the mother, you know, it can't survive outside the womb. You can't use those as justifications for abortion because you can find born people who also fail to meet the criteria that you say is needed for human value. So this should be something that concerns all of us because it deals with the larger issue of basic human equality. And if we believe that all human beings have intrinsic dignity and worth, then that ought to be protected regardless of whether that human being happens to find themselves in the womb or outside the womb.
if we would reject the euthanasia, the euthanizing of toddlers in order to spare them suffering of a disease, we should equally reject the euthanasia, the dismemberment of those same children in the womb simply because they have a terminal illness. These parents could have held these children and been their parents for as long as possible, but instead they intentionally arranged the death of their children. This is the culture of death. The final couple clips here I want to look at, look at some other families, some other women, and they share some pretty tear-jerking stories. And I hope that this enables us to have a certain level of compassion for these families' real emotional and philosophical struggle to, to balance opposing ideas. Those opposing ideas being, I can kill my child to spare them suffering, but also I love my child and they have intrinsic dignity and worth. Those can't, those can't both be true. And you can sense them struggle with this. So we should have compassion for these people. We should pray for them. But we need to examine the damaging nature of the ideas they're espousing nonetheless. So here's our next clip where a mother again explains that she really wanted her baby. But that it was selfish of her to not kill her child. It would have been selfish for her to give her child life. This is the pro-choice nature of doublespeak that justifies abortion. I remember at one point feeling selfish because I wanted her. And so I thought I shouldn't end the pregnancy because I want her, I, I want her here. But then I realized it's not about me. And And, and I need her. her and it didn't want her to suffer. That clip might be the most disturbing and frankly emotionally traumatic clip in the entire video interview that Vice released here. This couple is sitting together and this mother is saying that I remember feeling selfish. And you almost think that she's going to say to obtain the abortion. No, no, no. She says, I remember feeling selfish because I wanted her. And so I thought I shouldn't end the pregnancy. I wanted her here, but then I realized it's not about me. And I didn't want her to suffer. So selfishness defined by this family is wanting to give your child life, love, and a chance to stay in your arms as long as possible. That's selfishness according to this mother. What, now, now, so what's unselfish, right? If, that's, if it's selfish to want your child to give her a choice and to give her life for as long as she will live, then unselfishness is dismembering your child limb from limb during the second trimester simply because they're deformed or unable to live what you define as a normal life. That is unselfish. This is, this is what I mean when I say that the pro-choice movement inverts reality, turns reality upside down, 
and disguises vices as virtues. And if we don't acknowledge this, we will not be able to have meaningful conversations with those that we disagree with because they are functioning from an an upside down reality that views good as evil and evil as good, but they actually believe it. It's, it's not that they're it's not that they're trying to be evil. They actually believe that what they did was compassionate. This mother is crying. She wanted her. This is the same mother who said, I felt like my daughter deserved a name. And yet, selfishness and unselfishness just had their definitions exchanged. There's really only two routes that you can take here. If your child receives a fetal terminal diagnosis and you determine that you want to kill them, you can take two mental approaches in how you justify that. You can either take the route of selfishness, which is makes it primarily about you by saying that I don't want a baby with problems, right? So you're actually trying to avoid parenting a child with disabilities. So, so that's the selfish approach. Or you can take the fake compassion approach, the false compassion approach, the inverted compassion approach, which says, I'm not thinking about myself because she said, I didn't want to be selfish. She said, it's not about me. What followed after that? That I didn't want her to suffer. It's not about me. I didn't want her to suffer. Well, what did you do? Well, you killed her. So see, that's unselfishness. So the false compassion approach says that I'm going to kill my child because I don't want them to suffer, to spare them suffering. So either approach is ultimately selfish, but it's either a justification so that you can avoid inconvenient parenting or it's an inverted compassion that believes that you're actually loving your child by ceasing their future suffering. So abortion is for everyone, but especially for babies because this abortion is for my baby. It's for them so they don't have to suffer. So I've eliminated the sufferer to eliminate the suffering. The final clip we're going to look at is a mother who literally describes abortion as the loss of a child, almost kind of like a miscarriage, and, and again, inverts reality to justify her decision. You're pregnant and you have a baby. You yearn to hold them, to feed them, to nurse them, to put them to sleep. In my situation, there was nobody to hold. <laughs> so, I mean, my arms physically ached. That's the best way I can describe it. <laughs> I, I yearned to just hold and cuddle this baby that I had pictured in my mind and wanted so badly. I mean, I, I wasn't recovering from an abortion. I was recovering from a loss of a child. And I think that's what people don't understand. I mean, man, that's hard to watch. This is what I meant when I said that these women actually believe they did something compassionate. It was a hard choice. It was a difficult choice, but it was a justified choice. These women actually believe in this inverted definition of compassion that says if you dismember your child through legalized abortion to spare them future suffering, you didn't actually cause suffering by dismemberment. You actually spared them future suffering. 
So child abuse becomes an acceptable means of eliminating future suffering. Now, this was the mother whose baby was diagnosed with trisomy 18, a horrific chromosomal condition. And it's estimated that only really 12% of babies will make it to their first birthday. But there are humans, persons with trisomy 18 who have lived into their teenage years and some cases into their 20s. Now, do they live a life like us? No, they don't. They need full-time assistance. But that baby, that human is still valuable. And there's an entire foundation, a trisomy 18 foundation that provides a community of support and love for families who, are, who choose to walk through this journey in life and love, who keep their children. Now, again, from a parental perspective, I have no idea what that would be like. But I would never kill my child if they were diagnosed with trisomy 18. I mean, again, what a painful, painful experience to go through to hold this baby for however many months, weeks, or years you have them knowing that their life will be so short. But child abuse that ends in death is not an acceptable means of compassion for children diagnosed with terminal illnesses. I, I would love to see this woman meet with some families who gave their trisomy 18 baby's life and see the joy that is able to be had in whatever degree while balancing the reality that the baby won't be here for very long. This question gets to the deeper debate of what makes humans valuable. These families, guys, these parents actually believe to some degree that human beings do not have value in nature of the kind of being that they are, human beings, that they don't have intrinsic human worth, but that human value is only instrumental, meaning your value is only based on the circumstances surrounding your life. And if those circumstances are of sufficient suffering, then your value actually decreases on the the leftist sliding scale of human value. And if it decreases to a sufficient degree, then we can justify dismembering you to spare you future suffering. The pro-choice answer to what makes humans valuable is sadly convenience. And trisomy 18 babies, chromosomal disorder babies, hydrocephalus babies are inconvenient, both for parents to parent and for apparently the child to endure that suffering. So abortion becomes compassionate. So see, abortion is for everyone, but especially for babies, because if we can abort you, we can save you future pain. This should concern us all because we would not want to be treated with that type of view of human value. If you contracted some type of terminal illness, you would not want to be treated like that. So if we care about human equality, we have to reject any type of ideas or worldview that justify the intentional weeding out and euthanizing of human beings, whether born or unborn, simply because they have inconvenient and terminal illnesses. So thank you for joining me today. This was a heavy episode, but these are heavy ideas and moral 
ideas always have consequences. It's just a term. It's just a question of whether those consequences are good or are bad. And I think we've shown you that these bad ideas have really bad consequences. So head on over to iTunes and YouTube and give this show a review and rating because that helps us reach more people. We have about a few more weeks to hit that window of new and noteworthy on iTunes. So help us get there by reviewing the show and giving us five stars. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com for training videos, my speaking schedule, and to subscribe to my newsletter. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted.